Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Legal Faceoff podcast. I'm your host, Joe Brand. You're listening through WGN Radio. And as, of course, as always, joined by Tina Martini and Rich Lenkov. And we start off with a heavy hitter guest, Professor Alan Dershowitz, longtime professor emeritus of Harvard Law School. He's also well known for representing O.J. Simpson, Klaus von Bülow. And now, as of today, former President Trump and, of course, the host of the Der Show podcast. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Professor, welcome back. As you know, uh, you're one of my legal heroes. Uh, we, we love you on the show. You're, you're an amazing uh, guest. And of course, the Dirt Show, I just got to tell our listeners, the Dirt Show is growing by the day. I li- I've been a listener since day one, and uh, it's really an amazing show. Everyone should listen because it really teaches you a lot about the law in a way that you're not hearing from any other show except for Legal Faceoff and the Dirt right. Show. So I encourage all our listeners. My to- favorite show is, is your show. And of course, only thing that's missing from the Durst show is the wits, and that's provided by the audience and the listeners and the commentators. So please call in. You've got some great listeners and you treat them with great respect, which I really, uh, really appreciate. So let's jump right into it. You have been very notable in saying that the impeachment that we saw last week of ex-President Trump, now former President Trump, was unconstitutional. Explain to our listeners why. Well, the impeachment was unconstitutional because it's based on a constitutionally protected speech. That is a speech clearly within the protected area of Brandenburg versus Ohio. It was uh, a pablum compared to Brandenburg's speech. It was pablum compared to the Chicago 7 speeches that I defended successfully on appeal in the Seventh Circuit back in the 1960s. And it was common for people who go to the Capitol and speak, whether it be labor leaders, radicals, uh, suffragettes, you know, go to the Capitol, confront them. We're not going to take it. Fight back. Fighting words. Fighting words are protected by the Constitution. So the impeachment was unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds. It also denied the president due process. He had no opportunity to present the defense. They just voted. It was Hamilton's nightmare. Hamilton said the most dangerous thing would be for impeachment to turn on how many votes you had rather than on the guilt or innocence of the person being impeached. And then, of course, the decision was made not to send it to the Senate for trial while he was still president, but to essentially send it to the Senate to have a bill of attainder. The bill of attainder provision of the Constitution essentially prohibits legislative trials that can result in punishment. Punishment includes, under the Supreme Court decision, disqualification from office. So, There's every good reason why it's unconstitutional and a trial of citizen Trump as distinguished from President Trump would violate the core principles of what impeachment's all about, which is removal. Sure, once you've removed a president, you can also disqualify him, but you can't use impeachment simply to disqualify a person who's not in office. If you could, they can impeach you and me and prevent us from running for president. I don't know about you, but I'm over 35, and so I'm eligible to run for president. And that's not what the framers intended. You know, at the time of the framing, there were some state constitutions that did permit impeachment after a person left office. But the framers of the United States Constitution rejected that. 
and set out a process for trying a president. The chief justice presides. Is the chief justice going to preside over this trial? He's not the president. He's the former president. So who's going to preside? Perhaps the person that he's going to run against in 2024, Vice President Harris. Is that what the framers intended? Obviously not. So, Professor, do you think the Senate can convict Trump after he leaves office? I think I know the answer to the question, but... No, I don't think so. I think then he has to be tried in a civil court for crimes or other things. Impeachment is to remove somebody from office. Now, there's one case back in 1876 where the Senate acted improperly. They had a very narrow vote. I think it was 37 to 29 to allow the trial to go forward. But then he was acquitted when 23 senators who thought he was guilty voted that the Senate didn't have any jurisdiction. So that's not much of a precedent. The better precedent is Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon is forced out of office. He resigns. He could easily have been impeached and removed. But nobody thought to do that. In America, we don't put former presidents on trial. You do that in banana republics. You do that in undemocratic regimes where if a president's defeated, they put him on trial, sometimes execute him. But in America, we move on. And I think from a policy point of view, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm saying to myself, I want my agenda to be highlighted in the next month, not past attempt to try to take recriminations against the former president we don't like. Uh, Professor, we have seen many in the last few days of the rioters, the uh, uh, protesters, the seditionists, if you will. Many don't agree with that term. Um, uh, being rounded up for their actions on January 6th in the Capitol and being charged with various crimes. We have already seen many of them say that they should be pardoned by the president. That didn't happen on Trump's way out. No. Uh, and many are saying that they're not responsible legally because they were following the order of the president. Uh, does that make any legal sense to you? It makes about as much sense as the devil made me do it. Twinkies made me do it. No, let's look at the facts. The president spoke to maybe, what, 30,000 people. A small percentage of them went to the Capitol. So the vast majority of people who heard the president speak didn't even listen to him, didn't even go to the Capitol. Then a lot of them did go to the Capitol. Most of them stayed outside. They engaged in perfectly legal protests. Some of them went inside. They committed a crime. Some that went inside damaged property. They committed a more serious crime. And a small number hurt people and killed people. They committed a very, very serious crime. But the idea that they have a defense when most of them didn't do it, the vast majority of people didn't follow up. And what did the president say? He said peacefully and patriotically. He didn't say commit crimes. He didn't say break into the Capitol. He didn't say steal Pelosi's uh, uh, computers. Those people are responsible for their own crimes. The devil who made me do it is not a defense. I wrote a whole book on that some years ago called The Abuse Excuse. It was based on the Menendez case. Remember the case in California where people started raising all kinds of excuses and justifications for what they did, blaming everybody but themselves. That's true of the rioters. They ought to be punished. They took actions that they did individually. <laughs> this wasn't shouting fire. When you're in a crowded theater and somebody shouts fire, Everybody leaves. Shouting fire is not an appeal to the mind. It's an appeal to the legs and the adrenaline. Nobody reasons. Nobody says, maybe I should do this. Maybe I shouldn't. You just get up and leave. That's not what happened here. He didn't say, you know, he wasn't the pipe piper. He didn't blow his uh, pipe and have everybody lead, lead everybody to the Capitol. These were all individuals who made individual decisions. All right, Professor, we're going to there's so much legal. There's so many legal stories to cover. And you're you know, you cover them so ably on your on the dirt show. We want to try something new. We want to try a speed round with 
with you, Professor Dershowitz, and we want to throw some topics at you. We're going to set a clock here and give you, you know, a very short period of time to answer one or two word answers with a little explanation for our listeners. But we're going to we're going to call this. Sure. Uh, you mentioned one of the books that you wrote. You have written so many legal books. My favorite, of course, was Chutzpah that you wrote many years ago. But you wrote a book called Rights from Wrongs. And we're going to call this segment Right from Wrong. And I'm going to tell you a statement, and you tell our listeners whether this is right or wrong from a legal perspective. Okay. All right, you ready? All yeah. right. Uh, um, Biden will pardon ex-President Trump. Right or wrong? Wrong. Why? He won't do it because Trump won't want it. He wouldn't accept a pardon. Now, under the Constitution, you don't have to accept a pardon, but Biden... Biden All right. do it, and I don't think Trump will ever be. All right, next one. You already represented former President Trump in an impeachment trial. You will represent ex-President Trump in another impeachment trial, right or wrong? Wrong. I will defend the Constitution in the court of public opinion, but I will not appear on the floor of the Senate. I gave it the office. Done it once. Enough. Very good. Third one. Trump could have pardoned himself on the uh, last day of his presidency for crimes that he committed or will be charged with in the future, right or wrong? There's a clear answer to that. No one knows. <laughs> it's impossible to know. I think probably legally he could, morally he should not. Another one that you just referenced, Chief Justice Roberts would preside over a Trump impeachment trial number two, right or wrong? Wrong. It says the president, not the ex-president. And the Justice Roberts, who I remember from law school, is very much a textualist. He'll read the Constitution. He'll say, no way do I preside. All right. I like how this is rolling along, Tina. Uh, right or wrong, President Trump could have declared martial law as some of his supporters wanted, including the My Pillow guy on the last days of office. Right or wrong? You might use this pillow, but don't take his legal advice. Totally wrong. The Constitution does not allow a president to declare martial law. It does allow him to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in case of invasion or insurrection. Not applicable here. Wrong. All right. More. Every listener of the Dersha will know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it to you. More than 9,000 lawyers and law students signed a petition uh, following the January 6th events at the Capitol calling for the disbarment of Senators Hawley and Cruz for their actions questioning the Electoral College. That that action and any action to disbar these lawyers was right or wrong? Not only was it totally wrong, but I think the students who signed the petition uh, should be subject to some kind of uh, scrutiny. Haven't they read the Constitution? There's what's called the speech and debate clause. You can't be held liable anywhere, questioned anywhere in any place for anything you said on the floor of the Senate. So these students, D minus with great inflation for constitutional law, go back to law school, read the Constitution, grow up. All right, here we go. Uh, Twitter and other platforms suspended Trump's account um, following the January 6th events, right or wrong? And specifically, uh, is that a violation of the First Amendment? 
Mm -hmm. It's not a violation of the First Amendment, but it's wrong. It's a violation of the spirit and culture of freedom of speech in America. But they, too, have their First Amendment rights, and they're entitled to be wrong when they exercise them. The First Amendment protects the right to be wrong. And so Twitter and Facebook were wrong. So, Professor, um, Vice President Pence uh, rejected the Electoral College certification. Was that right or wrong? Absolutely right. He had no authority. He is only the presiding officer who casts votes only in the case to break a tie. He had no power without the Senate approval to do anything other than preside and break ties. All right. Two more. We're rounding the corner here, Joe, on our on our uh, right or wrong segment. Professor, um, was Trump or I'll say it this way, Trump's January 6 actions and his comments leading up to that and immediately subsequent to it were a proper basis to invoke the 25th Amendment, right or wrong? Not even close. 25th Amendments for incapacity, medical problems, having been shot, having had a stroke. Um, you can disagree with what the president did. I disagreed. I think what he did was terrible. Uh, that speech was awful. But clearly he's competent. I've spoken to the president since. I spoke to him about some pardons. He was perfectly competent, perfectly able to govern, and he did grant pardons. Nobody's challenging those pardons. So last one, Professor. Trump should face li civil liability for his January 6th actions, right or wrong? You can't face civil liability for engaging in constitutionally protected speech. Constitutionally protected speech protects you not only against criminal, but against civil liability. Wrong. Professor, you did great on the <laughs> on the quick round. We love it. Uh, a couple more questions now that we have you. We have a couple more minutes left on Legal Face Off. Um, we talked about the Dirt Show, uh, again, which I listen to every day, every time it's on, and it's really growing in popularity. Tell us about how this has given you a platform to talk to many um, folks in the legal community and just the community generally and how that has transformed what you're doing and how you're communicating. Because historically... You know, you would generate a book, you would be on talk shows, you would be on, on the media. You're one of the most prolific authors out there. But how has the ability to uh, reach your uh, followers in podcast changed how you do things? Well, it's very important that we have podcasts because I was banned from CNN. In fact, I'm suing CNN because they doctored a tape of what I said on the floor of the Senate. I've been banned from MSNBC, essentially. So I need a platform and my platform is podcast. And I think podcasts are great, great First Amendment of vehicles. And, uh, you know, I've been teaching 50 years. I stopped teaching a few years ago when I turned 75. And so now I have a platform to teach many more students than I ever taught at Harvard Law School. I taught a total of 10,000 students when I taught at Harvard Law School. And now I have more than that listening on a daily basis. So I'm thrilled to have uh, an opportunity to teach, an opportunity to hear voices, to hear young people, old people, Democrats, Republicans. Podcasts are a wonderful, wonderful platform. And that's why I love to be on your podcast. All right. Well, you can hear Professor Dershowitz's podcast on his platform, wherever you can find podcasts. Again, that's The Der Show. Listen to it right after you listen to Legal Face Off first. And you can also find everything about him at alan-dershowitz.com. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Well, one just one more word, if I can. You know, uh, I always am worried that uh, that YouTube might ban me because I might violate their policy. So I went on Rumble, which doesn't ban things. Rumble has no censorship. So my preference is people watch me on Rumble and uh, I won't be censored. So but you can watch me on Rumble or YouTube. But my preference is Rumble and subscribe. It's a fun podcast and call in as well. Thanks for having me on your show. I really enjoy my face off with you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff, brought to you by WGN Radio. Our next guest is Rachel Denver, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division. She's also specializing in former Soviet Union countries. And Rich, we're getting into Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny detained upon returning to Moscow. Yeah, Rachel, uh, Mr. Navalny is uh, certainly the most outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin. And uh, we all know that a few months ago he was uh, he fell ill during a domestic flight in Russia. And uh, it turns out that he was poisoned. Many suspect that the Kremlin and specifically Putin um, ordered that poisoning of one of his most outspoken critics. Well, he has returned from being in Berlin, convalescing in Berlin. And immediately upon arriving in Russia, he was detained by authorities and is now serving, I think it's a 30-day sentence. Um, and the Russian authorities are alleging that he is in jail right now because he violated uh, parole over a 2014 embezzlement charge. Many are pointing, uh, are saying that that's nonsense, including the outgoing State Department um, and the incoming State Department, and are calling for his immediate release. Bring our listeners up to speed on what you think is really going on here. Uh, a couple of things. First, thank you so much for bringing me on the show. Uh, I just want to say that it's not just the political uh, the political spokespeople who are saying that the 2014 case uh, was uh, wrong. Uh, it's also the European Court of Human Rights, which is uh, attached to the Council of Europe, which is like Europe's prime, primary, uh, most authoritative uh, human uh, human rights body, official human rights body in um, in that region. Russia's a member, and the European Court said in 2017 that the case, the 2014 supposed embezzlement case against Navalny was um, uh, was unjust, unfair, and uh, made Russia pay damages uh, for it. So, what's going on? I think it's I think it's pretty blatant, uh, it's plain as day that this is a cocked up case against yet another cocked up case against Navalny that really shows that the um, that the authority, the Russian authority want to silence him at all costs. They, um, if, uh, you know, he, he was poisoned, the poisoning failed to kill him. Uh, he, went, uh, he went abroad, he was sent, he was sent abroad uh, unconscious, he was airlifted uh, to convalesce. And then, uh, guess what, the day before his, uh, the day before his parole was, uh, his parole period was to end, uh, the parole service suddenly says, um, well, you have to return tomorrow 
or, uh, or, you know, you'll be in violation of your parole and you could be arrested. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just patently absurd. Also, I mean, he was airlifted to, uh, you know, to, to Germany to convalesce, uh, unconscious. Uh, and um, there, he was not obviously not hiding from the parole officers. They knew exactly where he was. So, I mean, all of that's just complete complete bogus, uh, really clumsy, um, embarrassingly clumsy um, uh, allegations against him. Also, you have to look at the way they uh, they, uh, they 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 arrested him. They the court sentenced him, or the, the, you know, the court decided a, in a hearing that was held in the police station that he should uh, await a judge's decision on what's going to happen to his uh, parole violation. Uh, that he would wait for thirty days in in uh, in a pretrial in a pretrial detention facility, await for that judicial ruling. Whereas you know, in parole, there's no precedent in for in Russia for parole people who are who are accused of violating parole, that they would await a judge's decision on the merits, uh, will have to wait for that in, in prison. Rachel, I, I want to pick up on that because, you know, we're a legal show and we talk a lot about civil and criminal procedure, uh, mostly in the U.S., but also comparing it to, you know, other countries. And you're, of course, an expert in that. Um, talk to us about what this proceeding looks like. Again, as you mentioned, inside a Russian jail, which is very unusual from the Western perspective, and also what um, due process uh, and other, you know, um, human rights violations might be occurring in the Russian legal system, especially when we're alleging, many have alleged that this is coming right from the top of the Russian political system. Right. Well, I mean, to take the second part of your question first. You know, it's very hard to to get uh, hard evidence, and this is a legal show. And you know, I imagine evidence is the most is the most important aspect of any legal of or key aspect of any legal proceeding. We'll never get hard evidence that this was ordered at the highest levels of of Russian power. All we have to go on is a very uh, considerable, voluminous pile of circumstantial evidence that definitely proves that that's the case. Um, and then to answer your question about legal proceedings on, on parole cases, um, uh, sorry, legal proceedings taking place in a police station, there is such a thing in Russia, uh, in the Russian legal system as um, traveling courts. They're called business or, you know, that the, the, the court, if you can't, you know, the, the court hearings can take, don't necessarily have to take place in a, in a courtroom, um, sometimes a, a judge. It is true that uh, that a court proceeding can take place in some other setting, but I mean it's quite obvious from all of the other uh, factors in this case. This sort of the circumstantial uh, conditions in this case. For example, rerouting his flight from Vnukova Airport to Sheremetyevo Airport, putting air safety, people's air safety, uh, in uh, in jeopardy potentially. Um, you know, inconveniencing thousands of people potentially just to make just to try to have him land in a place where he would not be met by his supporters. To, you know, to I mean, I think that's a pretty strong piece of evidence that this is uh, this is a extreme, a highly politically motivated case. Uh, Rachel, last question here on Legal Faceoff. Um, Vladimir Putin has already said that incoming President Joe Biden, who we just saw sworn in at the Capitol a few minutes ago, has exhibited uh, anti-Russia sentiment. How do you think uh, human rights um, violations and what do you think the future of human rights is between Russia and America in the upcoming Biden right. administration? Great question. Uh, two things. First, I think it's really important to flag that Putin sees any criticism of Russia's human rights record as anti-Russianism. 
right? And that's really unfortunate. Um, second thing is, I think you, we, I think that we can expect the a Biden administration to, we certainly called in the Biden administration to be much more forthright about the about the human rights situation in in Russia to call out violations in a way that the Trump administration was often slow or half-hearted about. And to support to support Russia's uh, community of human rights defenders and um, and Russia's civil society, we've called on the Biden administration to open up visas again uh, in Russia uh, to enhance possibilities for fellowships for internships in the United States uh, uh, for uh, Russian civil society activists. You can find Rachel Denbar on Twitter at Rachel underscore Denber. That's D-E-N-B-E-R. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Next on Legal Faceoff, we're very privileged to have one of the nation's foremost civil rights lawyers. Uh, we've been trying to get this gentleman on the show for many years, and he's very busy, so we're really lucky to have Ben Crump. Ben, welcome to Legal Faceoff on WGN. Thank you so much for having me, Rich, and thank you for covering these important legal matters. Thanks, Ben. So I want to talk to you first about uh, a verdict that I'm still trying to get my head around. As a defense lawyer, I honestly don't love massive verdicts because I, I defend a lot of those clients. But I got to tell you, it's uh, it's really astounding the amount of the verdict that you and your your colleagues achieved in Tallahassee. Most importantly, because it was all it was it was one of the first all Zoom trials. So tell us from a legal perspective how you managed to get was it 411 million dollars? 411 million and 14 cents. Wow, wow. How did you manage to get that kind of verdict on a Zoom trial? One of your specialties, of course, is talking to a jury, explaining your client's stories to a jury. How did you do that by Zoom? Well, Rich, uh, like most cases that you get um, phenomenal verdicts on, it is the parties. And our client, Dwayne Washington, was one of the best people I've ever met on the face of the earth. Um, he was a highly decorated veteran. He was a single father raising his three three children. 
this accident was so tragic because it was a massive uh, car collision on the interstate and he was riding his motorcycle. Um, and so the insurance company for Top Auto Express LLC, uh, they fought liability. And so they never would offer the policy limit. So they really forced us to bring this lawsuit. And when we started talking about his injuries, Rich, I mean, he was practically paralyzed. Uh, his pelvis was broken in seven places. Uh, you know, the fact that he can walk and drag his leg now is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, his right leg, he'll probably never get use of it. But thank God he has his left leg uh, and he's in tremendous pain always. So we were explaining that to the jury, how he went from being the person who took care of everybody to now his son, who's in high school, literally has to help change his diapers because he has no control of his bladder or his uh, kidney functions. And literally um, every night he knows he's going to have a wet bed. Uh, tragically, he knows that he has to have that catheter. Um, and it's just very difficult psychologically, not only just physically, to not have your 16-year-old son, because his other two sons are in college, uh, have to take care of you hand and foot. And so explaining that to the jury and having those boys testify about the superhero their father was having his military colleagues come and testify about what an incredible human being this was. And now he's a shell of himself through no fault of his own. That's why the jury connected with Dwayne Washington. And as I asked for a full verdict, not a half verdict, a full verdict, because a half verdict, we all agreed during jury selection would be tantamount to an injustice. And so the jury... The jury gave us a full verdict. So, Ben, you've got a long and distinguished career, as we talked about earlier, of communicating and connecting really uh, powerfully with juries. And, and I think what interests so many of us on this case is that that really depends, that success really depends on you looking a juror in the eye, connecting with them, them understanding the plight that your clients may be in, and then connecting with your clients, right? You're an expert at doing that. How can you do that by Zoom when you're looking at people the way you and I are doing, not not you know, not one-on-one, not eye-to-eye, -eye, but through a screen? You know, Rich, that was a great challenge. But what it taught me was that human emotion can transcend any platform. Remember what they taught us in law school? You got to make people emotional because once they're emotional, they will act. And so despite us being uh, uh, in a courtroom talking to a computer monitor, it still was you got to look in the eye of that camera and those jurors got to see probably even more prominent than when you're in a courtroom because they can get close to the monitor. And so they saw everything they saw when... Dwayne Washington's son said, I would give anything for my dad to 
help practice with me on football like he did before this accident and how that kid started crying. I mean, it connected, Rich, and it's it's challenging, but it's not impossible because human emotion transcends. Ben, good, good. That's a really interesting point. So turn your attention to what we just saw a couple hours ago, the inauguration of a new president. Uh, this is in the wake, of course, of two weeks ago to the day where we saw the Capitol overrun by marauders and rioters uh, in the name of um, impacting the electoral college process. Many have compared that scene where we saw police officers literally open the gates and allow them into the, you know, into the, the Capitol to the scenes we saw over the summer when uh, law enforcement was coming out in riot gear against Black Lives Matters protesters and other uh, social equity pro- protesters. What did you see uh, from your vantage point as you saw this happening a couple of weeks ago? And how do you think they should be dealt with compared to some of the other protesters, how they were dealt with over the summer? You know, obviously, that is a question I'm asked a lot, Rich, uh, by the nature of my work. Um, and, and I just want to start off on a good note because it was a wonderful day, uh, this inauguration, to see the optimism back in America that we are better together than apart. And Kamala Harris uh, is my dear friend, so I was so happy to witness history, you know, with my little eight-year-old daughter, Brooklyn. When I think about what happened on January 6th, 2020, I'm sorry, when I think about what happened on January 6, 2020, and I think about all the Black Lives Matter protests where uh, people were exercising their First Amendment rights for my clients, uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, and Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. These three uh, young black people who were taken away from us far too soon in just unbelievable circumstances, an unbelievable manner. When you think about George Floyd having the police officer knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. When you think about the police in Louisville, Kentucky, lying on a probable cause affidavit to get the judge to sign a no-not warrant where this innocent black woman ends up with her body mutilated uh, with six bullets in the sanctity of our own home. And then Ahmaud Arbery, who was literally lynched for jogging while black in 2020. And you think about how the police pepper sprayed, tear gas, and arrested these mostly young people for saying Black Lives Matter. And then we witnessed what happened on January 6, 2021, when it was a largely majority white uh, protest. And the one thing I say, Rich, is this here. I often go on television and I argue that we have two justice systems in America, one that governs Black America and one that governs white America. And I've been making that argument from Trayvon Martin in 2012 all the way to George Floyd in 2020. But now I have prima facie evidence because we saw with our own eyes that these protesters were doing an insurrection. I mean, they attacked the United States Capitol. And if a picture 
is worth a thousand words, then a video is worth billions. Yeah, and Ben, it's really unfortunate to your point that we continue to this day to see examples of that kind of thing happening. You know, we've covered extensively on Legal Faceoff the Anjanette Young situation here with the Chicago Police Department. That's the lady who uh, has house was raided um, and she was naked for a period of time and the video wasn't disclosed. We also covered recently the uh, the story of the, the the so-called Soho Karen. I know you're involved in that case where uh, this woman, you know, attacked a young black man who oh, she thought. You. Yeah, who she thought, you know, took his iPhone and, and, and literally attacked him. And then we found out later that she's got a history of DUI and she's got a history of being thrown out of hotels. So. This stuff, uh, unfortunately, continues to happen. We're really happy to have you on the show. Please come back. Uh, your latest book is Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Ben Crump of Ben Crump Law. The website is bencrump.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off, and please come back and update us on these very important cases that you're, uh, you're involved in. I certainly will, Rich, and I'm at Attorney Crump uh, for the latest updates on social media. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will, and Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff here on WGN Radio alongside Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. I'm Joe Brand. Our next guest is Amanda Vinicky, Chicago Tonight correspondent of WTTW and common friend of the show. And a uh, lot to get to with today's inauguration and Springfield measures and, and all types of things. So I'll let you guys just take it away. Amanda, so we usually have you on at the first show of every year. That's a tradition we've had on Legal Faceoff for many years, and you've been nice enough to come on and update our listeners about some new Illinois laws, which we'll get to at the end of our questions. Unfortunately, this year, there's not that many new laws, so we want to talk to you about some other uh, goings-on in, in Illinois' capital, Springfield. First of all, we just saw Joe Biden sworn in, of course, and we all know that Springfield, the capital of Illinois, took some precautions leading up to today's inauguration, given what happened on January 6th. So, number one, did you hear of any issues, any unrest down in Springfield? And number two, talk to us about what the state was doing both in D.C. and in Illinois to prevent what we saw uh, in the capital a couple of weeks ago. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. I love our New Year's tradition. I, I also love, you know, a toast of champagne on New Year's Eve. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to pick that up and put that into the for podcast sure. in future years. But um, yeah, I, so I am speaking to you from Chicago. I'm not actually in Springfield, but the reports from the State House are that all is calm, that there are, as you 
can see in some of these situations more journalists, drones, and security than there are protesters. Um, and I was, however, in Springfield for the lame duck session just last week. And so their security was very tight and it continues to be. You have signs saying, you know, no guns, no visitors at the state house. And that is very different because, of course, this is one of those other, other temples uh, to democracy. The Illinois State House typically welcomes visitors. That said, not all that different for 2021 because the state house has really been closed down just like in Chicago, the Thompson Center, due to the coronavirus. So Amanda, we went very quickly last week from the longest serving house speaker in American history to that position being filled by Chris Welsh, who's a relative unknown. What's the backstory there that maybe some of our listeners don't know about? The Backstory, I, you know, I think we are all still trying to get a grasp of how this all went down. And for me, it really is somewhat surreal. Michael J. Madigan has been the presence in Illinois politics for decades as Speaker of the Illinois House. And then his dual role, which, by the way, he still holds, is Chairman of the Democratic Party of Illinois. And uh, to see him lose that speaker's position in really such a rapid fashion was incredible. And for me, it was frankly tough to cover as a journalist and disheartening um, in part because Madigan, particularly in this past year or so since he's been facing really tough ethics questions and legal troubles, hasn't been talking to the media. So um, they put under the guise of the coronavirus that said session was held in this convention hall. I mean, we did not have access. The only way that you could speak with representatives about what was going on during these machinations was via, you know, text, really, um, or if they were walking out of the convention hall to maybe grab a bite to eat or to leave for the day and if they would deem to come over because journalists were kept so remote. That is something, by the way, that the new speaker, Emmanuel Chris Welch, has said he plans to be more transparent. Um, not quite sure what that means. He said at the very least that he has a Twitter feed and that is something that Madigan does not. So, um, again, a, a lot of questions we had thought when Madigan said uh, he was going to step away from trying to get votes. That was something that we thought was maybe a calculus on his part to try to have the caucus come running back to him, see how tough it was for anybody else to get to that requisite 60. Um, I, I think really one of the big stories here is, first of all, the role that women played in the displacement of Madigan. They really were the catalyst of his demise as the Speaker of the Illinois House. Um, you had those including State Reps Tara Costa Howard and Williams, uh, Stephanie Kifowit, the latter two had tried to be Speaker themselves that were outspoken and public in saying that they would not vote for him for another term as Speaker. Welch, interestingly, was not one of those individuals. In fact, the Black Caucus had endorsed Madigan, um, but the Black Caucus really had a banner session. And I think that is for a large part why we have Welch now in the speaker's chair. It is because the Black Caucus wanted him there. They were pretty insistent from what we hear that a Black individual be the one for the first time in the Illinois House to be speaker. It's, it's ironic, uh, Amanda, that Welch has his own 
issues and, and own past with alleged mistreatment of women. But moving on to really the most substantive piece of legislation passed in many years, and certainly in this session, is the criminal justice reform package that now awaits Governor Pritzker's uh, signature. Could you give our listeners a really quick synopsis of that, because that's obviously getting a lot of attention and many people are displeased with it. Y'all, again, the, the, the Black Caucus agenda, the criminal justice component was at the forefront of it, but it wasn't just that. I mean, these were huge, huge, huge bills and that criminal justice um, changes affect everything from people when they are arrested. Um, and that is that they are going to get to keep their phones, to get phone numbers and be able to make more phone calls if you are somebody who is a detainee but hasn't been found you know, guilty of anything yet. And then those who have been, those who are in prison. Um, cash bail is going to be eliminated in subsequent years in Illinois. I mean, this is huge and also guidelines for use of force for police and frankly, some changes to uh, how police are going to be able to bargain and what over as they come to collective bargaining agreements, something that we'll be keeping an eye on as Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot still as her with her predecessor, Rahm Emanuel, had yet to reach an agreement with the Fraternal Order of Police in Chicago. It is huge. So Amanda, as Rich mentioned, we love having you on every new year to go through what's usually dozens of laws um, that take effect at the beginning of the year. And this year, we continue that tradition, but it's a bit of a shorter list this year, only three laws, mainly because of COVID. Can you summarize those laws for us? Yeah, it, it is because of COVID. And I will say, I think to some people, this is a you know, a, a disgrace in that the legislature wasn't meeting, by the way, another complaint about Madigan, that he didn't really have things going um, throughout this whole coronavirus session. Others would say, good, we have too many laws in the first place. Government's getting too big, too much. So these three laws um, are, are certainly, I, I would say, um, I don't know if I want to use the word less significant, but at least less broaden their ramifications than many of the new laws that we often talk about. This is one that um, caps out-of-pocket costs for prescription insulin, at least for certain types of insurance, and that limits it to $100 for a 30-day supply. And that, of course, is very big for diabetics who depend on that. Another is something kind of already an existing program, but this expands protections to, for those who survive sexual assault such that their personal identifying information cannot be accessed by their stalkers. And that is through a state program. And then the other one, allows law enforcement to collect DNA samples from relatives of an individual who has gone missing so that um, it would help that should somebody be located, perhaps in unfortunately an incapacitated state, that blood could be tested and law enforcement can help to connect loved ones and relatives. So those are really the, the only three big things that took effect at the start of 2021, but clearly plenty of other news in 2021 and at this new year for us to be following besides new laws. Right guys. That's for sure. Absolutely. We got, we got the issues with uh, all the legal marijuana money that's supposed to be flowing through the state. That's not working out quite so well. That's another you know hot issue coming out of Springfield. I know. Yeah, the the lack of movement on social equity licenses being granted uh, for both marijuana dispensaries and for others uh, that are part of the cannabis recreational in terms of growing. Um, and all of that is at a standstill as there are legal issues there. And I do think this is going to be something that weighs down Governor J.B. Pritzker potentially as he's going to begin to looking at a re-election campaign just because some really 
big promises were made and they have not at this point been followed through on. Man, last question really quick while we're talking about current events is I know that, you know, we heard this week about Mayor, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York asking some of the pharmaceutical companies directly to sell uh, COVID vaccines to the state. Do you think we'll see that in Illinois? Because the news yesterday that we saw, the amount of COVID vaccine that we're getting is is ridiculously small. And by some accounts, it'll take, you know, a year and a half to get people vaccinated if this is the pace. So will we see Governor Pritzker reach out directly to uh, Big Pharma and ask to sell us vaccines directly? You know, and uh, how disheartening the vaccine gives such hope. It really is, uh, I, I think, um, from having spoken with, you know, epidemiologists and experts in this field, it's more than a vaccine. It's effectively a cure It once we all get it. Um, the governor has not spoken, I think, perhaps due to the inauguration. He hasn't had what has become a typical weekly address to talk about COVID-19 updates. Hopefully we will have that later this week, but I would not be surprised should that be a route Governor J.B. Pritzker takes. Certainly he reached outside of the conduit of um, government resources from the feds early on in the pandemic as a means of getting PPE. And so um, it is something that his administration, I think they want to show and uh, beyond just showing, want to do because who isn't looking for a cure for health, for love of society and to get the economy back on track and uh, started up again, that he would do anything in his power or frankly, even outside of those classic terms of power to be able to get more of that vaccine. If you've got any news tips, send them Amanda's way at a Vinicky, that's V-I-N-I-C-K-Y at WTTW.com. You can also find her on Twitter at, at Amanda Vinicky. Uh, Amanda, 20 days in, but happy new year. Thanks very much. I, I love that. Yes. Yeah, send me all the story tips. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me, everyone. Back to Legal Faceoff here through WGN Radio. And now our next guest, Attorney Jessica Jackler of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff LLC, and also named Illinois Super Lawyer Rising Stars list three times. Jessica, I'm going to let Rich just intro this one for you. Revaccination policies in a workplace. Yeah, Jessica, thanks for joining us. You wrote a great article in CLM Magazine that everyone should check out on this topic. But talk to us about whether employers can make COVID-19 vaccines mandatory. Obviously, we're hearing a lot about the vaccine. And uh, the question is whether your employer can mandate that you as an employee get vaccinated for the protection of the workplace. Right. So this is a very hot topic right now, uh, especially now that the vaccine is being distributed. The short answer here is yes, um, employers can make uh, a mandatory vaccination policy, but it's not an absolute. Um, employers can certainly make it mandatory that employees be vaccinated to return to the physical workspace, but there may be exceptions to that mandate that employers need to be aware of, um, especially when you are dealing with employees who object to getting the vaccine, typically based on disability-related reasons and religious-based objections. Let's go into those. If I'm an employee and I've got, let's say, a disability that I think prevents me from getting vaccinated, uh, do I have the right to tell my employer I don't want to get vaccinated? Sure, of course. And, and this is the most um, widely uh, known objection to getting a vaccine in the workplace. And again, this is not a 
strong yes or no. It's a gray area. There is a multi-step process that employers need to go through in order to take action against an employee who objects to getting the vaccine for disability-related reasons. First, the employer has to determine if that employee is going to pose a direct threat um, to the workplace if they are unvaccinated. And usually what this means is that there is a conclusion made that the unvaccinated worker will expose others at work to the virus. If the employer reaches this conclusion, that is not the end of the inquiry. It then has to determine if there's any way to provide a reasonable accommodation to that employee that would not pose an undue hardship for the employer. So as you can see, this is a multi-step analysis. So you have to engage in this interactive process with the employee. You have to determine if a reasonable accommodation can be made that would not pose an undue hardship for the employer. And after all of these steps, if the conclusion there is no reasonable accommodation can be made, only at that point can the employee be excluded from the workplace. And that doesn't mean terminated. It just means excluded. You have to then see if they can go on leave or if they can work from home, or if there's something else that can happen. And only after reaching those conclusions would you then maybe talk about termination. So what about religious uh, objections? You mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. What right do you have as an employee to refuse a vaccine on religious grounds? And can the employer question the validity of those religious objections? Sure. So the process for religious-based objections is similar to disability-related objections, but not quite as strict. Employers also are obligated to provide reasonable accommodations based on a sincerely held religious belief, observance, or practice, Um, but it's not quite as harsh for the employer to not, you know, be able to provide that reasonable accommodation based on an undue hardship argument, because an undue hardship argument under Title VII, which governs religious discrimination, only requires an employer to prove more than a de minimis cost or burden to the employer for rejecting an accommodation request. Whereas under the ADA for disability, it has to be a significant cost or burden to the employer. So it's a little bit less of a strict standard for accommodating an employee based on religious-based objections to getting vaccinated. Um, As for if you're questioning the validity of a religious, um, it's that occurs. And if an employer, uh, typically employers are supposed to take the employee's word essentially, but if there is a question about the validity of their sincerely held religious belief or practice, the employer can require that the employee provide some sort of more information um, supporting their religious beliefs, basically. That might be from a clergy member or something like that that would support that their beliefs, observances, and practices are sincerely held to be protected by Title VII. Last question on legal face-off, Jessica. We've covered this before, I believe, with another Bryce Downey, a Lenko attorney named Storis Downey, who heads up our employment practice. But remind our listeners um, about what happens when an employer learns about a an employee who has COVID-19 and what obligations they have to disclose that to other employees as people are getting back to work, and also what rights the employee has uh, privacy-wise and not having that he- personal health information disclosed. I know that's a long question. We've only yeah, got a minute no, or so. But- got it, and I can sum it up pretty quickly, actually. Um, the concise answer to that is employers should not disclose an employee's name, but they should put um, um, other employees who were working in the immediate vicinity, if, if we're talking about a physical workspace, 
um, they should put them on notice of that they had recently worked with an employee who has tested positive without identifying that employee because that would be confidential information and that um, confidential medical information under the ADA. So you don't want to do that. That could be a violation of the ADA. It could be a violation of other privacy laws. So you just want to put your employees on notice for their health and safety and for your own liability, but you do not want to reveal the identity of that employee. Great information. I know you've done a lot of writing, a lot of speaking, a lot of webinars on this topic. It can all be found at your bio at bdlfirm.com. Employment attorney Jessica Jackler, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Moving on with Legal Face Off, on to our legal grab bag. And our special guest today, we have Kimberly Cook, a family law mediator of Dovetail Conflict Resolution. You can find her on Twitter at KAC underscore ESQ. Also find her work at dovetailcr.com. And of course, another podcaster, Grown Girl Divorce. And we love that name. Even though we would like to work in the Cook name, we love that name. Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited about this. We also Guys, we're excited to, excited to have you. Sorry, uh, Joe. So we're talking first about pardons. Um, you know, Trump just left. Uh, and in the wake of his departure in the last 24 hours, he predictably issued a flurry of pardons, which, you know, to be fair, is his right. Every president has done so. Many are criticizing Trump's pardons as uh, overly partisan and, uh, you know, criticizing who he agreed to pardon. But to be fair, the con- it's one of the areas, one of the few areas where there is really no oversight. The Constitution grants the power to the president to uh, pardon almost anyone as he sees fit. So in the uh, last remaining hours, he uh, issued many pardons, including of Steve Bannon, who uh, was one of his henchmen, many would say. Um, but, you know, in the run up to that, he pardoned many others involved in his presence. He were convicted of crimes like Michael Flynn. So Bannon wasn't, I think, a huge surprise. Uh, Lil Wayne, the little one, was uh, pardoned also. He was granted clemency. Uh, another rapper named Kodak Black was granted clemency. Kwame Kilpatrick, who's the former mayor of Detroit, who I think held the record until Blagojevich of the uh, longest prison sentence for a public corruption scandal in history, he was pardoned. So uh, many others um, uh, were pardoned. Tina, what are your thoughts on these pardons as uh, we say goodbye to Trump as he makes his way to Mar-a-Lago? Not a lot of surprises in this list, but I do think he wins the award of the most diverse set of people. Um, When you go from Kodak Black and Lil Wayne to Steve Bannon, I don't think anybody ever would imagine talking about these folks in the same sentence. But I mean, I think it ended up being what, Rich, like 150 people, something like that. Right. All in. So not a ton of surprises. He promised today in his farewell speech that We'll be seeing him in some shape or form soon, um, which I think left a few of us kind of wondering, you know, what that portends, but um, not a shocker as far as I'm concerned. Kimberly, uh, notable is that Trump did not pardon himself, which has generated much discussion over the last year or so on our show, whether in fact he has the power to pardon himself. And we just covered that with Alan Dershowitz. Uh, Also, he did not pardon uh, Rudy Giuliani, who will be a witness and maybe, um, you know, subject to some kind of prosecution if 
the Senate impeachment trial proceeds, also did not issue a pardon to any of his family members. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's so interesting that, you know, Steve Bannon was in that lineup, but then, you know, Rudy was not. Um, You know, I would certainly say that it was of all the decisions that he has made. It is one that I actually agree with. Right. You don't pardon your family members if you, you know, truly believe they've done nothing wrong. You know, we don't start just handing these things out. Now, clearly in that lineup of 150 people, I would agree with Tina. Like I'm looking at a number of those individuals saying, Actually, you know, this is suspect on so many levels, but it's constitutional, right? You can absolutely do it. But the fact that, again, it wasn't extended to family members, I think, you know, it speaks to the reality that I think he understood that that goes just a step too far. Um, But I will say that I'm sure a number of the family members are a little perturbed about not getting that, um, you know, get out of jail free card to hold in their back pocket just in case. I'm I will tell you, I'm anxious for the coming months to see what's coming down the pipe for many um, of Trump and some of his sidekicks. And, And my hope is that Um, You know, New York is moving the charge ahead in the lineup of of really kind of bringing people to justice. So it should be interesting. But I I am pleased to see that there is no one um, really in his true inner circle and by inner circle, his family um, who were uh, who, who got out of jail, you know, in the proverbial got out of jail free today. Yeah. And Eric, a pardon would not have affected any state prosecutions, one of which Kimberly mentioned is happening in New York. What do you think the likelihood of those proceedings happening against the Trump family, Trump specifically himself? Do you think there's an appetite? It's one thing to have a legal basis for it. But President Biden has already stated he's not going to direct his Justice Department to pursue Trump. Now, that was before January 6th. I think you know things are different after January 6th. But do you think there's a political will out there to prosecute an ex-president and his family, given that, you know, uh, we're trying to move on from from Trump and that, you know, 72, 73 million people voted for him? I think in New York, there's definitely that political will. I, I, don't, I don't think Trump has done anything to extend um, uh, his goodwill to the people of New York. And I think the prosecutor there, the attorney general, is is all in. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm very anxious to see what Chapter 2 brings, both in terms of Trump's, you know, political next steps as well as his business next steps. I think his businesses are, are definitely in a state of decline, and it's going to be extremely problematic for the Trump family going forward. We just got to pick up on one thing, Eric, because you're one of the most prominent uh, commercial real estate people that I know, and certainly in the city, there's a lot of talk that they're going to pull the Trump name down from the tower in Chicago. What's the latest on that? I mean, is that building much harder to rent than it was, you know, let's say before the presidency or even in the early days of the presidency? There's absolutely no doubt that that uh, that sign on top of that building um, does not help the marketing or sales element. I I think, um, look, the uh, the retail space in that building, which is right along the river, right? You know, prime retail and or office space, you would think would be, you know, grabbed up uh, in a second at some point in time. That space has remained vacant since the building was built. And Cushman and Wakefield, a large uh, brokerage firm, was marketing that space for a long period of time. And as many of you might know, um, a lot of a lot of large vendors 
have backed out of their relationships with the Trump family, including Cushman and Wakefield, including JLL, um, many other financial institutions. So I think they've got their hands full. Um, and the other concept that they that they had, which was um, owning a number of the condo hotel units within that building, that product type is is you know not very attractive right now. So I, I, from a financial gain perspective, um, the Trumps are in trouble. The question is who's going to buy it? Who's going to bail them out? Maybe a legal face-off. I mean, how many letters is legal face-off? I love it. I love it. You know, it's um, when Trump was elected. Uh, if you recall, there were plenty of protests in the city and there were protests leading down to his building. And it really seemed like you were watching some superhero movie with Trump being the villain, playing the villain with his name all over the skyline. It was, it was, it was a fascinating effect. But I think, I think that sign is going to come down soon. I really do. The voice you hear is Eric Feinberg, vice chairman and co-head of the Chicago office of Savills Real Estate as we move on here with legal grab bag. So, Tina, Flint water arrest, a former Michigan governor charged with two misdemeanors for helping contaminate the water supply in Flint. Yeah, so this is actually a story that we've covered previously. Obviously, one of the biggest environmental um, cases and issues that we've seen in recent history all going back to 2014, when in Flint, Michigan, they changed um, the Flint water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. Um, They didn't treat the water properly, lead leached into the water and it's caused death and sickness among many. Um, So Rick Snyder, this happened under his watch. um, And as a result, he and about 15 other state and local officials Um, have been charged uh, with various types of crimes. Um, Some have been charged with manslaughter. Um, As Joe mentioned, Rick Snyder has been charged with misdemeanor counts of willful neglect. Um, What's interesting is that even over the last couple of days, there have been developments in this case. Um, It looks like uh, his lawyer's contending that he's going to file a motion to dismiss because he was charged in the wrong county. Um, there were also, in the last 24 hours, there's, there's been um, stories and inklings that there may be more indictments heading of former Governor Rick Snyder's way. So definitely something that is going to be worth watching. It's um, just a really sad story. And, um, you know, I think that this is not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, Kimberly, frequently in these kind of cases, um you know, in this case, Snyder is saying that he's been scapegoated. And frequently when we see public officials, government officials charged for, um, you know, criminal activity like this. I mean, after all, manslaughter is a serious criminal charge and you don't see it frequently charged with a public official. Frequently when that does happen, there are, you know, cries of overreach and prosecutorial overreach. I personally think in this case, it's the right move. And I'd like to see more of that because what we saw in Flint And I don't even think the full story of Flint has been told. I think it will be told, hopefully, uh, through these trials. But I don't even think that the entire story of the amount of corruption and willful abandonment of that uh, community, we haven't seen that yet. So I'm happy to see, and I represent a lot of municipalities. I'm not in favor, generally, of these kind of lawsuits or, or actions. But in this case, I'm happy to see it because I do think that there's way more of the story than we know right now. Absolutely. Look, I think this is one of those stories, you know, as Tina said, look, this is incredibly tragic. And I don't think that we have really even delved into 
all that happened and all that transpired. And, and I think, you know, getting away with, and I, and I, I don't say that lightly uh, with a civil suit, it's just not enough. I, I think that this is the type of suit that really should bring criminal charges. And I feel very strongly about that. You know, people died. There were decisions that were made um, really for financial gain. And so to kind of do this, I'll get a slap on the wrist. I'll pay some restitution. You know, it's just not good enough. And I think that as a country, we are starting to hold people accountable in ways that we haven't done before. And so absolutely, I think these are the right charges. It's the right time. And I think it will send a message to anybody coming after that we don't play with people's lives here because we're in positions of power. And and I, I think it's a real, I, I think this is, um, real time to do um, this and do it the right way. So I, I'm all for it. Moving on to a pretty bizarre scenario at O'Hare Airport. A California man arrested after he had lived there for three months. I've heard of layovers, but but this is kind of crazy, <laughs> Tina. So, yes, um, the gentleman's name is Aditya Singh. And as Joe mentioned, he was living at O'Hare for several months. Um, He has been described by people who know him as a kind and gentle soul um, who viewed his stay at O'Hare as part of his completing of his karmic lessons. Um, So he was apparently pretty scared of COVID. I believe he was on his way back to India, uh, which is his home, and um, got so scared that he ended up whether it was stolen or whether it was discarded, he got somebody else's credentials, an employee at O'Hare, and was able to stay in the restricted and secured zones of O'Hare for three months, which is pretty remarkable. Um, But in any event, he was finally caught a few days ago. And um, this is one of those bizarre stories. I seem to recall that we covered on this show a while ago, that woman who kept like hopping planes without <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And I mean, apparently this guy's a really nice guy. He donates his time to charity and so forth. I mean, I have no reason to believe he's not a nice guy, but the notion of living at O'Hare and staying there any longer than I have to is just beyond is beyond what I can fathom. So talk this up to one of the um, stranger stories on legal face-off, but he was charged with felony criminal trespass for his actions. Yeah. I mean, Eric, my my first thought, Eric, was that uh, security at O'Hare is not doing the best job. Although it's like what the second or third busiest airport in the world like that. I mean, you can understand how someone could, you know, make his way around O'Hare for a few months uh, unsuspected. Yeah. My biggest question is, I mean, this guy is trying, he's scared of COVID and he's hanging out at O'Hare for three months. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that is the last place I go. <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest question, but, but, but to your point, Rich, you know, security at O'Hare, you know, it's, it's like security at the Capitol, right? You know, it's kind of like, you, you, you think it's great, you think it's good, but you know, I think to, to you know, to the general, you know, there, there are holes everywhere. And, um, and I think there are a lot more holes in, in, in security, whether it be at O'Hare or any, anywhere uh, than, than we all think. Yeah, Kimberly, Eric raises a great point. Let me think. I'm scared of COVID. Let me pick a place where there's international travelers from around the world yes. coming and going from hotspots. Yes. Yeah, that's a good idea. For sure. Well, so when I 
heard this story the other night on the news. I was thinking, there's so much going on here. Absolutely the security issue. But that same thing, the last place I'm trying to spend any extra time right now is an airport. But putting all of that aside, look, I... The the woman we were just talking about a minute ago, I can't think of her name, but I keep saying, stop locking her up. Somebody hire her and show us all of the holes. It's the same with this guy. Look, yeah, they've almost done us a favor. It's not three days. It was three months. And, and so to me, there's a real issue here that we are missing something that kind of the average person, and, and, and I put that in quotes, the average person can get away with. So maybe we should sit down and have a round table with these people and say, what are we doing wrong? Because we're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in security and protections and all of these things. And we have, you know, people who can hang out in the airport for three months and this woman can get on planes over and over again. We are doing something wrong. They know how to do it. Help us fix it. It's super bizarre, scary, and all the things rolled up into one. Hire these people and let's get it figured out. Yeah, really interesting movie too. If only they could make a movie about someone living in a <laughs> airport terminal for a long time. <laughs> Except he didn't want to be there, right? He was trying to leave. Oh, supposedly. supposedly. <laughs> speaking of things that, speaking of things that flew under the radar for a little too long, uh, we've got a another unfortunate situation where. A guy takes advantage of his prominent role and a woman innocently becomes a victim in the situation. The Mets firing their general manager, Jared Porter, formerly of the Cubs front office, after they discovered he was texting graphic uninvited text messages and images, Rich, to a female reporter. Yeah, and there's some legal liability, right? So that's what we're covering. That's an aspect of the story. Obviously, uh, in many states, including New York, where some of this activity occurred, it's a crime to stalk a woman, rightfully so. It's a crime to send unwanted messages, especially of a sexual nature to a woman. I mean, this stuff definitely crosses the line, arguably, into criminal assault because uh, many of the pictures he sent were of his privates. Um, Joe and I were talking earlier about, you know, what woman couldn't turn down the all the romance and, uh, you know, charm of a guy sitting in a Hampton Inn somewhere sending pictures of his own privates. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly some criminal liability. There's definitely some civil liability on the Mets. I mean, obviously, you know, whenever we cover these stories, I want our listeners to think of two different sides of liability, right? There's civil, there's criminal. Uh, I think the authorities will pursue it, but um, there's definitely there definitely will be a lawsuit, I would imagine, by this young lady against the Mets. And, and rightfully so, if it went on for a long period of time, you would understand that, uh, you know, the Mets either knew or should have known about it, even though the new owner of the Mets, Steve Cohen, who summarily dismissed the GM, and also Sandy Alderson, who's a, you know, lifer in baseball, said we didn't know anything about it. As soon as we knew about it, we fired him. But there's definitely civil liability uh, there, too. But, Kim, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, you know, it just continues to teach us that uh, some of this disgusting, egregious behavior, uh, particularly by men in power against women who are subordinate sometimes, um, just continues to go on, even though, you know, they get caught and they get shamed and they get fired, but it still happens. It still happens. I, you know, it's yet again, it, it's um, 
unacceptable. It's, but unfortunately, I'm sure there's somebody else out there doing it right now thinking they won't get caught or that they're above, um, you know, being held accountable. So there's a couple of things here, though. I think the Mets, you know, moved on it very quickly. You know, it's the story hit, they made a decision. I think there's so much more to, understand though, because my understanding is the timing of this may have dated back several years. And so, you know, I don't know if whether or not uh, some of the prior organizations that he was with at the time may hold some responsibility. Who knew? What did they know? You know, did someone give it a pass? And so I, I think that there are a number of organizations that are likely very concerned and could be lawyering up right now because timing is going to be really key. And and um, I think that the Met saying, look, we will cooperate. We're going to get you know, behind this, we'll figure it out. I, I think that that speaks volumes to them as an organization. Yeah, no, I think, um, look, I think every organization has got their, you know, what I'll call limitations or, or, or maybe limits in terms of what they deem to be, you know, you know, horrific behaviors, right? And, and whether or not the perpetrator has, has, has amended themselves, right? So you look at Antonio Brown, right? Antonio Brown, wide receiver for, you know, the, the, the New England Patriots and, and for many other teams, you know, he was deemed to be, you know, a terrible person for everything that he was doing to, to women um, in the league. Tampa Bay picks him up. Right. Yep. And he becomes a, a core member of their team. How does that reflect on Tampa Bay going forward? I think different organizations definitely have different, you know, limits as to kind of what they will take towards, you know, what they deem to be winning. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think the Mets did a phenomenal job. I really do. You know, the White Sox, you know, be it'll, time will tell, you know, and, and if, if La Russa strays at all from the law, you know, that they're going to have egg on their face. Right. It's going to it's going to reflect horribly on the organization. You know, Rich, can I just add, though, I think it also to Eric's point, I think it also depends on what their customer base will tolerate. Right. And and so I think there are a lot of teams out there whose, you know, major supporters can kind of, you know, turn an eye to a DUI charge so long as no one's, you know, injured or it, it because, because I think that's one of those things, unfortunately, where people are like, well, you know, it happened. How many of us are leaving the game and couldn't have been pulled over? It's very different than the idea of, you know, text messages that are explicit, but I also think we are also now at a time where you have a lot of movements. The Me Too movement was huge. And we have seen where organizations have not benefited from what I'll call the cancel culture. And so I think the Mets were like, look, we're not going to play that game. It's not worth it for a guy that you know hasn't been with the organization that long. We don't need it. So, you know, let's let's move on. But Again, to Eric's point, there are a number of them. I mean, we could list the football players, and I'm a big football fan, um, that I, to this day, have trouble watching certain teams because, you know, I'm like, eh, you know, we know the stories about you. We know your behaviors. And yet, you know, people are still uh, pushing, you know, behind these these individuals. So I think it really just depends on, you know, their customer base or uh, those people who are really supporting them is how people are responding to these type of things. With the Mets, we stay in New York as they are pursuing a fraud case against the NRA. Meanwhile, Tina, 
the National Rifle Association filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in Texas. Yeah, so this is one, this is a recurring story we've covered here on Legal Faceoff about the NRA. Last August, um, the attorney general filed suit against the NRA to have them dissolved um, because of um, allegations of diverting millions of dollars in funds. Uh, last week, the NRA actually filed bankruptcy, Chapter 11 in Texas. Um, they claim that they are dumping New York as their home, which it has been since 1871, and they're moving to Texas where they think that their um, existence is going to be a lot greener and rosier than it's been. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the NRA, especially with the change in the administration. Um, but yeah, this is um, an organization that is definitely rife with controversy. Yeah, they spent, uh, by some accounts, $100 million defending lawsuits and legal fees. So, uh, Eric, they're hoping that they're moved to a more Second Amendment friendly state like Texas will maybe reduce that litigation exposure. Yeah, look, I think um, from a legal strategy and financial or economic uh, strategy perspective, it's it's a brilliant move. Right. And and whether you agree or disagree with the NRA's positions, um, you know, they are doing likely the right thing for the organization, uh, for the longevity of the organization. Um, you know, the the. You know, we talked a little bit before about New York's attorney general, and I think, you know, you know, she's doing what she can to to go after people and organizations that, you know, she disagrees with and, and basically most of the state's populace disagrees with. And I think, um, you know, I think that's going to extend over to Trump, as we talked about before. All right, Rich, we've got a Tennessee law firm that is offering free divorce on Valentine's Day. That's it. Do you get a coupon or what? <laughs> well, Kim, uh, this is obviously in your wheelhouse. We want to hear from you on this. But, you know, Tina, excellent marketing strategy at the end of the day. I mean, you know, this is obviously a, a, uh, a loss leader, not that dissimilar from when you see the Walgreens flyer and they're offering, you know, um, you know, a, a, a $1 toothbrush to get you in the door. I think this is a chance to A, get the firm some notoriety and B, maybe get you in the door uh, for some other legal services. But yeah, free divorce. There are some caveats. Uh, it has to be, uh, you can't, it can't be for people with um, custody issues, right? And uh, uh, presumably they're not going to offer it to both parties. That would probably be a conflict. Uh, although I guess it's for uh, couples who don't have a lot of other issues that they're fighting about. So good marketing strategy, maybe, Tina. We're, we're certainly talking about it on Legal Faceoff. Yeah, we are. And it's interesting. What I didn't have a chance to do was take a look at what other areas this firm practices in to try to really figure out how they're leveraging this opportunity. Hopefully, you know, if people have to make the difficult decision to get divorced, it's not going to be like they're a repeat customer <laughs> um, and, and say, okay, well, I had a great divorce this time. Maybe I'll just, you know, remember for the next time I'll use the same firm. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, you know, I guess it's as cute as you can get with something like divorce, um, especially doing it on Valentine's Day. But yeah, I think the fact that it, ha it can't be contested and they have to mutually agree, I think at least that's a silver lining in an otherwise difficult situation. Kimberly, okay. this is your area. Uh, you know, one thing that we've learned from COVID is the person that you're living with, you either 
uh, got sick of them really quick or realized <laughs> that you're in for the long haul. But, you know, big spike in people seeking divorces and separations. What are your thoughts on this move? Okay, so let me just say, so I read this headline and I cringed, right? Because Valentine's Day is the time of year where we start seeing all of these, you know, divorce party or, you know, free divorce. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Like there are people who are suffering and and there are relationships that are really need a lot of help here. You know, what are we doing here making a mockery of this? And then... I looked into this story and I will say it's a very good marketing tactic because when you actually understand what they're offering, it's really more along the lines of kind of like a pro bono opportunity. And so it's really, it's designed for people who could not otherwise afford to get divorced. It has a lot to do with uh, people who are struggling in this last year and they're requiring people to really kind of submit a, you know, why should we grant you this opportunity? So I, I actually think at the end of the day, it's a great thing and a great service that they're offering because frankly, as someone who has, um, you know, practiced divorce for almost 15 years, you know, divorce is very expensive and it gets expensive very quickly. And so there are a lot of people who remain in very unhappy and unhealthy situations for financial reasons. It happens all of the time. And unfortunately, organizations, and there are fantastic organizations out there who provide kind of reduced and and low cost services, they can't help everybody. And then of course, if you have the, you know, kind of financial wherewithal as, 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 people like to kind of point to, to afford, um, you know, uh, representation, again, being able to pay a retainer doesn't mean being able to, you know, fund a divorce that could go on for a while. So I really do think that what they are offering in this opportunity and really recognizing, because I believe it's out of a small town, their community and the impact that they could have on a family. I think it's a great thing, even though, again, I will say I saw the headline and I was like, Ugh, no, thank you. Here we go again with, you know, we're doing something with divorce and Valentine's Day. Save me. But at the end of the day, good for them. And I do hope that a deserving family gets their services. So kudos to them for this. I envision people down South saving money on a, on a divorce, getting a boat and just sailing for maybe like a month or something. But apparently you, you can't do that in Georgia, Rich. We've got the weirdest laws throughout the entire nation. And according to Georgia law, you cannot be on a boat for more than 30 days straight. Yeah, I, I've been on boats in Georgia for like 29 days and thought I should keep going and thank God that this law is in place. But yeah, we want to end off this show with some strange state laws because we talked to our friend Amanda Vinicky earlier about some earlier about some new Illinois laws in 2021. And it got us thinking, we do this almost annually, but some other strange laws that have gone to effect. So in addition to the Georgia one, let's see, there's a whole list here. In Indiana, our friendly neighbors to the east, um, you're not permitted to catch fish with either a firearm, which, you know, I've seen some people fish in, in Indiana that, that, that does sound about right. <laughs> and uh, with your hands alone. So I'm not a fisherman myself, but I think it's kind of hard to catch a fish with your hands, but it is illegal to do so in Indiana. Another one I want to point out, and then I know Tina's got a couple of favorites, is um, 
in the state of Oklahoma, it is now illegal to make glue out of dead skunks. So that could be a thing. That that might be a thing. That actually might be a thing where, you know, that one does that one doesn't like shock me as much as the the fishing with with a firearm. I'm a little I'm a little concerned. That would be rough. And then there's a couple of states involving uh, excrement in different ways. You can't throw uh, poop out of a moving car in Oregon. Presumably you have to stop. So it's okay to stop and throw the you know, crap out the window, but you can't do it while driving, which makes some sense. You know, no, no one wants to be hit with a, uh, a container of crap. And then in Texas, you cannot pee on the Alamo. Oh, I, again, I think that's probably driven by college kids. Hate to say it, but I could see that that was probably a, you know, it's like a suppression of your sorority first, bet. I, th- I think like it was a violation Ozzy of your First Amendment right to pee where you please, though. Right. I think it was Ozzy Osbourne, though, that uh, that, that caused yeah. that law to go into effect. Exactly. Exactly. Any others that jump out at you, Tina, that you, uh, you found? Yeah. Amazing? So Minnesota, I really liked this one. Um, you can't chase and catch a pig greased, oiled, or otherwise. Um, you also um, can't throw turkeys or chickens in the air with the intent to catch them. Hmm. So, I don't know. What is the intent? So I mean, what is the all, intent? Why would you throw them? And second of all, I don't know. Are you trying to get them to fly? I, I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's, that's removing about a third of the fun things to do in that state. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I would just Wyoming, like, I love the Wyoming one where you can get fined $750 for not closing a fence behind you. They must be looking for things to do in Wyoming. They have to be. Well, it's just one big fence around in the whole state. There's, <laughs> it's, it's a Trump fence. So, so do Wyoming parents, when their kids walk in and they don't close the door behind them, do they say, what do you live in Oklahoma? Or what do you live in California? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> what do you think you live in Oklahoma? Exactly. <laughs> I'd also just like to point out if you're using a firearm to catch a fish, you're not catching a fish. You're not you're catching killing the fish. <laughs> Very true. Uh, you've kind of taken the sport out of fishing, haven't you? <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, that was. Any others that you guys saw that you liked? I think isn't it? Isn't there an Illinois law that says you can't fall asleep in a cheese shop? Yes. Yes. Like Thank what's God. happening in the shop that somebody is falling asleep? In the cheese shop. And why is anyone really concerned? I mean, my God. <laughs> I think they're just drinking a lot of wine in the cheese shop, having fun, and probably passing out. <laughs> I was wondering if it's a Wisconsin thing. People yeah, coming down all inebriated. Yeah. Uh, I, I con- did. I was thinking Kentucky- maybe that's Wisconsin, not, not Illinois. But, hey, it is what it is. The Kentucky one kind of was a bit shocking to me about selling dyed baby chicks. You, can, you can't sell... You can't sell one, but you can sell six or more. Yeah. That was an odd, it's kind of an odd law. Again, yeah. it's Kentucky. Like, you know, that's on the, that's on the state flag. I mean, what, what else are you going to do in Kentucky? I'm surprised Rand Paul would allow a law like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds like something that came, you know, around like Easter time, right? Like yeah. they're selling all these chicks and somebody was like, oh, I want a pink one. I want a blue one. I want a... Yeah. They were like, let's shut that down. We're not dying chicks around here. Damn animal rights, snowflake people. <laughs> let us let us harm our chicks. Let us dye our chicks because we want to give them away as Easter presents. Yes, yes. I love it. I love it. Those are fantastic. They keep us in line, let's say that. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> 
All right, we'll avoid uh, buying peeps around Kentucky during the <laughs> yes. Eastern time, apparently. Kimberly, Eric, thanks so much. This was a, an absolute blast. Thanks for joining us on Legal Grab Bag. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Great being here. It's great to be here. All right, once again, for Rich Lenkov, for Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand. This has been another edition of Legal Faceoff brought to you by WGN Radio. Stay tuned for the next Legal Faceoff podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.